welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner, always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. The International Energy Agency has made clear net zero means no new oil and gas projects. And so we're not giving up. Since 2016, European banks have provided over $400 billion of capital to the top 50 companies expanding oil and gas production. So our work is far from done. Hey everyone, late in 2022, I noticed a BBC News article stating that HSBC, one of the world's largest banks, had committed to end funding for all new oil and gas drilling. The commitment alone was noteworthy, but what really caught my eye as I was looking to understand what drove such a powerful commitment was the mention of a small nonprofit group based in the UK called Share Action. I learned that their investigative work, pressure, and collaboration with financial service firms and other companies is accelerating the climate transition. The secret to their sauce is what's known as shareholder activism. And here to explain it today is Simon Rawson, Share Action's Director of Corporate Engagement and Deputy CEO. A former British diplomat, Simon helped build the social responsibility practice at McKinsey & Company. He brings real sophistication to his advocacy work, understanding the need for quality data and for balancing pressure and collaboration. I learned a lot from this conversation. And if you're interested in understanding how the financial system can help accelerate climate action, I think you'll enjoy it. Here we go. Simon, welcome to Invested in Climate. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. You're based in the UK, so we're recording this at the end of your workday. Was it a productive day? Anything special happened today? Yes, I'm here on the, the south coast of England in Brighton. And well, I don't know, it's a special day because the sun's shining, the sky is blue, and it feels like spring's in the air a little bit here today. Busy day with the team. Grateful to be sort of transitioning into spring, I think. Fantastic. I got to be in the UK a couple of weeks ago, and we did see the sun, and I want to make sure to get outside and enjoy it while it lasted. But thank you so much for joining this conversation. We've got a lot to talk about, and I'm really excited for this conversation. I've quickly become a big fan of the work that you're doing, and I think it's an important story to share. So we're here to talk about share action and the work that you do related to climate change. Let's kick it off first, hearing what share action is and how it got started and the problem it's aiming to solve. Well, Share Action is a charity. We're based here in the UK and in Brussels, but we work globally. The, the headline is that we're working to build a responsible investment system. 
So we started Life 16 years ago as a much smaller campaign. We were focused then on the UK's largest pension fund and advocating for divestment from fossil fuels. But we've evolved a lot over the years, expanding out into a sort of fair pensions initiative. But as you all know, so-called ESG investing, which considers environmental, social and governance issues as part of investing, has grown massively over the past decade to the point that it's almost become mainstream. And yet what we see is that this has really led to the complete obfuscation of what this actually means and what's actually happening. So you have asset managers offering so-called sustainable mutual funds and ETFs, but which actually invest in some of the world's most polluting companies. Today, share action is all about setting the highest standards for responsible investment, working tirelessly until those are adopted across the whole system. Fantastic. Simon, let's talk about you for just a minute. You were director at McKinsey & Company focusing on social impact. So presumably in a position where you already were connected to purpose and in a position where you could be influential. So why the switch? Why are you doing the work that you're doing today? And why is it so important? Well, I'm a huge believer and supporter of the power of business to solve problems and improve people's lives. If you look back over history, that's what business existed to do. And indeed, professional services firms, whether they're management consultancies, lawyers, accountants, I think they can all help their clients to have greater positive impact. And there are many, many passionate people in those firms doing great work. But ultimately, for any of those firms, the incentives for them and for the individuals in them are linked to serving clients and therefore meeting clients' interests. That's not to say that there aren't some very thoughtful people with great conscience trying to push for what they know is right. Just that at the end of the day, the firms exist not to offer bold challenge to systems that support them. So I guess for me, having had a very enjoyable seven years at McKinsey, I reached a point where I wanted to step out of the system and to be able to operate with some independence from it and see where that took me. And really, that's been liberating. The main part of my role at ShareAction today is leading our collaborative investor initiatives, which is about bringing together groups of investors to engage with companies on issues like decarbonization. And with these investors, we're able to challenge companies and the sort of objectivity, the fact-based approach and the transparent agenda is really important to me. So let's start really broad and understand the mechanisms at play here and why the lever that you're pulling actually is quite powerful. Shareholders of public companies can have influence and help encourage companies to think long term, to not pollute the communities that they rely on as, as customers and employees, to treat their workers decently. Have shareholders been exercising that power? And how do they do it? How does influencing the behavior of big companies really work? Our whole theory of change at ShareAction is that the investment system has the power to build a sustainable world that, that is fairer, more just for the people who live in it. And the reason for that is that investors provide capital and as owners of businesses have influence over how they run. So as investors, the decisions are you know, allocating capital, so deciding which businesses get investment, and then also stewarding capital. So working to influence the way those businesses run so that they run in a way that minimizes the harm to the environment or maximizes the positive social impact that they have. So concretely, stewardship involves things like voting at 
company's annual general meetings. You'll be familiar with the concept of a proxy season where investors have to exercise thousands of votes at thousands of companies on matters from executive pay to climate disclosures. And it also involves engagement, which is about meeting with companies, the management of companies, and discussing with them priorities like decarbonization, like biodiversity, diversity, equity and inclusion, and other matters. So our mission at Share Action is to build the capability and ambition of large investors for ever more robust and responsible stewardship. So helping them to engage with companies in a way that is really impactful and delivers results. Yeah, so it's interesting. In some ways, the financial system is set up so that investors can have a lot of power and aim towards environmental or social goals or to make sure that the companies that they invest in are thinking long term and being decent stewards of the environment. But if share action is needed, it suggests that something isn't working. And I guess I get curious, is this a design flaw of the financial system, or is it just that there's elements of the financial system that haven't been activated and haven't been elevated enough? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think that over the last 40 or so years, you've seen an increasing belief in the the sort of doctrine of shareholder primacy. So it has been about returns above all else. So financial returns above all else. And and that's enshrined in a concept that's known as fiduciary duty that boards have towards their shareholders and that investment managers have towards their clients. But fiduciary duty, it really, really just means a duty of trust to act in the best interests of those beneficiaries. But that's become known as or been taken as just purely focus on financial returns. And I guess our perspective is, What's the point in having a maximized pension if the world is inhospitable or if runaway climate change has driven global insecurity to the point that it's not possible to live safely? Or if paying workers low wages makes it impossible to make ends meet in the short term? So we're really questioning what is the purpose of the system? Is it there to simply maximize financial returns and increasingly over the short term? Or is it also there to ensure that we do that in a way that doesn't exploit planetary boundaries, so our carbon budget and the precious natural capital, and it doesn't undermine the foundations of our society, which can be about inequality and can be about meeting basic human needs? When it comes to shareholder power, of course, power can be concentrated in the hands of asset managers who own a large portion of the companies that they're investing in. And to drill into some specifics of what ShareAction is doing, you recently released the ShareAction Voting Matters Report. And it apparently shows that the world's largest asset managers are actually often blocking progress on environmental and social issues. So tell us more. What was the research behind the report? Then most importantly, what did it reveal? Well, you're quite right to point out that asset managers hold a great deal of power in the current investment system. But we think that that needs to be challenged because ultimately asset managers are just investing on behalf of their clients. And their clients might be pension funds and their clients might be insurers and their clients might ultimately be people like you and me. So what we start to do at ShareAction is to really shine a light on 
what these asset managers are doing. One of the important stewardship responsibilities that they have is to, to vote on critical shareholder resolutions at companies' annual general meetings on environmental and social issues. So I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with the concept that listed companies hold annual general meetings, matters are voted on at those meetings, some of which are proposals put forward by shareholders, some of which relate to issues to do with the environment and social impact. And we analyze that year on year to look at how asset managers are casting votes on behalf of those asset owners, The ultimately you and me. It's stark, actually, in the latest proxy season. So we look back at the 2022 proxy season. So that was the one largely happening in sort of spring, summer 2022. And four largest asset managers, big US passive firms, that's Vanguard, Fidelity, BlackRock, and State Street, they all markedly decreased the percentage of resolutions that they supported compared to 2021. So just to give you an example, Vanguard in 2021, they supported 26% of resolutions. I mean, that's low anyway, and that fell to 10% in the 2022 proxy season. So that's sort of finding number one. And maybe the second one to call out at this point is just to say that we really saw a stark divergence between the US and Europe between 2021 and 2022. So in Europe, asset managers improved their performance. So on average, the percentage of resolutions that they voted in favor of in Europe increased from 69% to 81%. And in the US, it's stagnant. It sat around 40%. 41 and 43% to be precise. And you can look at all the data on our website. So I guess those are some of the highlights that some of the biggest passive managers are really falling backwards and the divergence between what we've seen in Europe and in the US. Help us understand that divergence. Does it have to do with the politicization of ESG in the US and the backlash that we've seen to ESG investment? I think it has to be, doesn't it? I'm not really best place sitting here in the UK to talk to you about the hyper-politicization that appears to be the case for many issues in US politics right now, but of course, related to ESG too. And we've seen certain state treasurers sort of acting around the politics on that. I think it's quite stark when you look at the facts and the CEO of BlackRock spoke in Davos earlier this year, and he said that there were $4 billion of mandates that they had lost because of the ESG backlash, which might sound like a lot, but that stands in contrast to the $230 billion that they took additionally from US clients last year. So quickly do the math. What's that? Like 2% or something like that, which really shows you the weight of opinion. It seems to me that the overwhelming direction of travel is towards responsible investment, despite a vocal, politically motivated minority. And many investors recognize that they have a vital role to play to secure the sustainable future for clients and beneficiaries across the world. And I think if I was a US manager you are almost trying to play both sides. You're trying to please everybody, please those on the left and those on the right. I think as BlackRock's data show, the sort of responsible investment side is much greater than the vocal minority on the other side. What I will say though is, 
I think it is also helpful to scrutinize what so-called ESG investing really is, because we'd be the first to say that there is a lot of greenwashing going on out there. We need to scrutinize that. We need to see higher standards of responsible investment and indeed greater regulation. But that can be done through robust and constructive debate. And I, I think the hyper polarization is unhelpful. Simon, the report also mentioned that these asset managers are actually members of the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative and Climate Action 100 Plus, as in they're signing on and making bold commitments to climate action, and yet apparently not always following through. Tell us about the importance of those initiatives and, and what they actually mean in practice. Right. And that's a great point. These are, as you say, bold commitments that asset managers make. They kind of do what they say on the tin. So Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative is a large group of asset managers who are making commitments to decarbonizing certain portions of their portfolios. Climate Action 100 is around engaging with the world's most highly emitting companies to try to transition them towards net zero. But as you point out, the reality is that members of those coalitions are failing to stand up for what they say they believe in. So we looked at voting patterns of members of the CA100 plus and found four members who repeatedly voted against seven resolutions at energy companies that had actually been flagged by the CA100 plus as critical resolutions that investors should support. So Alliance Bernstein, JP Morgan, BlackRock, State Street, all voted against a mixture of Chevron, Exxon, Philips, Valero, Imperial Oil, all critical emitters that are not in line with a Paris-aligned transition to net zero. So there is a, a great deal of greenwash at the moment within the sector. And and while, as I said, I, I find the, the hyperpolarization and backlash against ESG frustrating, what I would highly encourage is a real scrutiny of what asset managers are actually doing when they purport to have responsible investment practices. And Simon, tell us more about the hyperpolarization of ESG and really what's the next step here? Is it that there needs to be a counteroffensive to the backlash or is it really just having more rigor, more scrutiny around what ESG actually is to bring to light that these are not political stances, but really a stance around the long-term effectiveness and governance of these companies? Well, I think you already are seeing regulators scrutinize company behaviors, and you've seen investigations led by regulators in, in Europe and in, in the US examining allegations of greenwashing. Goldman in the US, TWS in Germany have both been subject to regulatory investigations. So I think that is only going to continue. And as I said, I actually think that the momentum still remains in favor of responsible investment. You look at BlackRock's inflows versus outflows in relation to the ESG backlash. And actually, I've heard asset owners in the EU talk to us about how they are withdrawing funds from US managers who are falling behind on responsible investment practices. So I do think Europe has a potential role to show leadership here in setting ever higher standards for sustainable finance and responsible investment. But then again, I don't want it to unhelpfully become a sort of EU versus US dynamic either. 
organizations like ShareAction, and, and there are others across the world doing great work too, can help shine a light on what's actually happening in the industry. And together we can work to raise those standards. Let's talk about some progress that you made recently. I saw that you were successful in helping some companies make some new commitments. I'm speaking specifically to the commitment that HSBC and and perhaps some other banks made to no longer financing oil fields. Tell us about these commitments and what actually did Share Action do? Walk us through what it takes to get commitments of this kind. Yeah, happy to. HSBC's commitment is an important step and it sends a really strong signal to the fossil fuel giants and governments that banks' appetite for financing new oil and gas is diminishing. But it's really important to recognize that what they've committed to is to no longer directly financing new oil and gas fuels. They are still providing a much larger proportion of finance to oil and gas companies at the corporate level. So it is not game over. We have not reached the level of commitment that we need to see from these banks across Europe, the US and beyond who are continuing to pile billions of dollars into fossil fuel industries. So we've been campaigning for HSBC and other banks to phase out fossil fuels, to create credible action plans to net zero and to increase investment into low carbon alternatives. The announcement, the recent announcement from HSBC followed a shareholder resolution that we had coordinated working with a number of institutional investors last year, asking HSBC to update its oil and gas policy. And indeed, we worked constructively with HSBC for months after that on the contents of that new energy policy. And we certainly see it as a success that we got there, as I said, but there is still a long way to go. Simon, it seems like in your work, there is this dance between pushing aggressively and also being collaborative. How do you think about that balance? And in this case, specifically with HSBC, how did it work? You've hit the nail on the head. We sometimes internally refer to ourselves as trying to be a critical friend to the finance industry. And that means that we're not afraid to speak truth to power. We produce benchmarks like the voting report that we've been talking about, which talk about an assessment of financial companies' current ESG policies and practices. So we're not afraid to call out greenwash when we see it. But we also want to work collaboratively with these investors to try to drive positive change in the system. And there are leaders in there who want to collaborate and who can work together. So it is a fine line. Sometimes it leads to tension, but it's something we seek to do day-to-day, week-to-week. And in the case of HSBC, we had exactly that sort of relationship with the company, a a critical friend, I would say. We've not been afraid to use forceful engagement tactics like shareholder resolutions. No company wants to face a shareholder resolution. When that happens, it means that the engagement becomes public. It means that all shareholders in that company get to have to vote on it. That's costly, and reputationally damaging for a company, but it's sometimes required in order to get the step change in engagement that you need from that company. So being unafraid to raise the bar when we need to, but also being prepared to work hard behind the scenes collaboratively with companies to try to make progress wherever we can. What is actually involved in creating a shareholder resolution? Is it something that anyone could do or is it share actions in a particular position based upon the coalitions that you're building? 
So the first thing to say is that it varies from country to country, and the rules that apply depend on company law in the in, in the country, and they're quite different between the U.S. and most European geographies. In most European geographies, you need a large amount of share capital in order to file a shareholder resolution at a company that's domiciled in an EU jurisdiction, sometimes as much as 5% of company stock, and that's almost unachievable in most cases. Although, obviously, you build coalitions of investors who are working together. In the UK, we have a particularly useful tool, which is that the law says either you have 5% or you have 100 shareholders. So there's a very easy way of doing that, which is to gather together 100 shareholders that each have one share. So we sometimes use that as a tactic for meeting the bar, then working with institutional investors. In the US, it's different. You need to hold $25,000 of stock, you need to have held it for a certain length of time. And compared to Europe, the process in the US is quite litigious or not, maybe that's the wrong word, legal. So there are a lot of lawyer letters being sent back and forwards between the filers and the company. The SEC gets involved and oftentimes resolutions are struck down. And then actually there's a bit of a difference between how they, the effect they have in, in the US and in Europe too. In Europe, resolutions are legally binding on companies. So if we succeed in getting backing for a shareholder resolution in, in a European based company, that becomes legally binding on the company. But typically, the bar is 75% support. In the US, it's a 50% support, but it's only an advisory vote. And obviously, given the size of the market in the US and those different conditions, you see many, many times more shareholder proposals going forward at US companies than you do in European companies. So I can get quite technical on shareholder proposals. All that is to say we think they're a great example of investors using the power they have to influence companies. But most of the large asset managers out there today are still afraid of using shareholder resolutions when needed. It sounds like a lot of your work then is building coalitions to be able to exert that pressure and to keep that pressure on. As you mentioned in the case of HSBC and others in the banking sector, that a small step forward is just a small step forward. There's still a long way to go. And so presumably, the pressure needs to be maintained. And so are you continuing those coalitions as in do they stay intact and you continue working continuously? What is that process like for keeping the pressure on? The International Energy Agency has made clear net zero means no new oil and gas projects. And so we're not giving up. Since 2016, European banks have provided over $400 billion of capital to the top 50 companies expanding oil and gas production. So our work is far from done. We work with these investor groups. They sometimes change in composition over time. We're always keen to expand them, but we never want to water down the level of ambition in those groupings. So they naturally change a little over time. But we remain committed to issues for several years, year after year. And certainly our bank's work is increasing. We started, as you've said, focused at uh, UK banks like HSBC, Barclays, but are increasingly now engaging with banks, large banks in Europe like Credit Suisse and others. Let's talk for a minute about investor returns. I guess a critic would say that the work that you're doing is at the cost of investors, as in that the more that you are successful in pressuring environmental action or defunding fossil fuel exploration is perhaps 
cutting into investor returns. In your efforts to put pressure on, are you including arguments and evidence to the contrary? As in, are you also making an economic argument around the long-term profitability and sustainability of these companies based upon a positive climate action? I think the financial case on climate change has been comprehensively made. There is going to be no value in oil and gas stocks in 50 years and investors are sitting on what will become stranded assets. There are, I agree, more complicated sectors which are harder to decarbonize, but increasingly and compellingly the case is being made there too. In the case of climate, I think that the only argument for not supporting decarbonization is an extremely short-term investment horizon, which does not take into account the effects of climate change that we've already started to see. But interestingly, we work beyond just climate. We work on social issues too, for example, on decent work, living wages and public health. And in some of those areas, it's harder to make a compelling financial case. In those instances, we sometimes talk about the systemic impact of things like inequality and the detriment to the economy, either at a national, regional or global level of rising inequality, whether that's through the insecurity that inequality ferments or sort of drag on growth. So sometimes we have to point to systemic risks and financial impacts. But ultimately, we're not investment advisors and all we're asking for asset managers and other fiduciary investors to do is to just be transparent about what they are prioritizing and be transparent about the impacts that their investments have. So maybe let's say that investing in line with decent work has a certain percentage impact on financial returns over a certain horizon. Let's be transparent about that, but let's also be transparent about the environmental and social cost of those investments. That's what we think responsible investment is. Simon, you mentioned that there's some sectors that are harder, particularly when it comes to decarbonization. And so it's fair to turn to the petrochemical industry, responsible for almost 6% of global emissions, and it's an area where there isn't enough attention or commitment to decarbonization. It's, it's hard for many reasons. And this is an area where you're focused. What are you hoping to achieve and how will you do it? Yeah, it's a really interesting sector. So as you say, it's one of the largest contributors to global emissions, partly because of the energy use in the processes to make these chemicals, but partly because today the industry uses fossil fuels as the feedstock, the input to all of those production processes. And, and this industry is making all of the plastics that go into our bottles and our yogurt pots, but also into almost every manufactured good on textiles. And it's pervasive, it's super high percentage of manufactured products that include some output from the chemicals industry. It's technically complex to change those processes so that you are not using fossil fuels as an input. And it's costly to do that because of the capital investment that's required. But it is technically possible. It is urgent that we start to transition that industry today, given the lifespan of the assets, the plants that companies build to produce these chemicals. That investment needs to start in the next one to two years if this industry is to transition 
to net zero by 2050 in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And we at Share Action, as I said, aim to be a critical friend. We, on one hand, are holding investors to account and saying, you need to be decarbonizing your portfolio. And on the other hand, saying, look, we recognize certain sectors are difficult and we want to work with you to make that happen. Our assessment was that chemicals was one industry which was not receiving sufficient scrutiny and which remained a real blind spot for investors. If you know your heavy industries, you'll know that increasingly steel and and cement uh, have viable pathways, but the chemicals industry has really lagged in that regard. So we wanted to shine a, a spotlight on it. And we've been working with a group of 35 investors to engage with 13 of the largest European chemicals companies to ask them to commit to using renewable energy, to ask them to commit to set short, medium and long term scope one, two and three decarbonization targets in line with Paris and to commit to decarbonize their feedstocks. So no longer to use fossil fuels. Simon, we've talked now about banks. We've talked about asset managers. We've talked about the petrochemical industry. Where else are you focused? Are there other sectors that you're focusing on, particularly for climate action? So those are our focuses for climate action today. We're currently scoping out a program looking at real estate, the built environment. Lots of different sectors come together there, and the built environment remains an important node for decarbonization because of the embodied emissions that are within buildings and the operational emissions that they produce as we use them in our homes, our offices, our factories, our warehouses. So we're starting to look at real estate. It's interesting because as an asset class, it's got very different characteristics than listed equity, which we've been talking about when we were talking about chemicals, for example, as you know, what shareholders can do. It's a long-term asset, the levers that investors and owners of those assets have are very different in terms of how they can influence the asset manager. So we're exploring that. We're quite excited about it. And similarly, looking at other asset classes, all of the focus, as I said, we've given today so far has been on listed equity. We're also looking at fixed income, so corporate debt and what bondholders can do There is three times as much corporate debt out there as there is equity, and yet it's really not used as a stewardship tool. So we're also exploring how we can develop a concept of bondholder stewardship, just like shareholders. Bondholders don't get a vote, but they do have a say in how the debt is used, the interest rate that's set, and the conditions that are attached to it. So that's an area of exploration for us. Simon, let's turn now to what everyday people can do and what they should know about and what they should think about. We know that there's been skyrocketing growth of interest in ESG investing, not just from institutional investors, but including them and retail investors as well. For everyday people that care about climate or perhaps other issues and are interested in ESG type products, what should they think about when it comes to shareholder activism? How can they actually have their values represented when it comes to shareholder activism? And what are some ways that they can make sure to leverage the power that they have as investors? The honest answer is it's quite difficult at the moment because the transparency around what asset managers who might be investing your money are doing is very low. And well, <laughs> that's what we seek to change. I want to give a shout out to some of our allies and peers in 
the US. You might have heard of As You Sow, who have been doing work like this for a long time as well. Majority Action, doing very similar, excellent work. And an organization called the Shareholder Commons, who take a particular sort of systemic view that I started to mention earlier when we were talking about making the case on issues where there's not necessarily a company-by-company basis. So look up their work. Oftentimes, they have shareholder proposals that they're putting forward. And if you are, if you happen to be a high net worth individual and you can speak to your wealth manager, then you can certainly express a voting preference. But unfortunately, for most people in most cases, if you're invested in mutual funds and ETFs, you probably can't vote your shares. There are some signs of that changing. Some platforms like Robinhood and eToro are starting to allow shareholders who have single line stocks in their portfolio in US companies to vote. But for the vast majority of cases, you won't be able to do so. Nevertheless, those organizations I mentioned, and of course, ShareAction would very much value your support. Do look at their research, do look at our research, and that can inform how you choose. So you may not be able to choose particular funds and see what their composition is or vote on particular stocks. But from reading research from ourselves and from others, you might get a sense of which asset manager is more aligned with your values than another. Simon, we've talked a bunch about the way it works today, the way it's worked in the past, and some of your aspiration. And I'm really curious, as we look further out into the future, say 5, 10 years, 15 years, how will this work? What is the vision for the future of how shareholders can have more power and there can be more transparency? And what does the future really look like if we're successful in reforming the financial system to better align corporate action with both what they're espousing as well as the values of investors? Well, I can certainly tell you what I think it should look like. My optimistic view is that we will see increasing standardization of corporate disclosure. So the information that companies are required to report about their environmental and social impacts and that work is happening right now at the SEC on that, work's happening at the International Sustainability Standards Board on that and in the EU. So I believe that that will happen. It will take time, but we will have disclosure around corporate impacts. I think at the same time, we will see increasing instances of asset managers and brokers providing ways for shareholders, ultimate beneficiaries like you and me to vote on their shares and have their preferences heard. But I think that the sort of fundamental shift that needs to happen is that those giants in the asset management industry, those that I went back to right at the beginning and was talking about their voting practices, the Black Rocks, the Vanguard, the State Streets, the Fidelities, and their European counterparts need to start to take responsibility for their impacts on the planet and its people as much as they do for financial return, and at least to be transparent about the trade-offs that they're making so that people can align their investment choices with their own priorities. Simon, thank you very much for sharing your insights and your perspective and for the work that you're doing. Thanks for being here today. Pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute 
financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.